Okay, hello. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 100th episode of the Daily Bible Reading Show. Yeah, 100 episodes. Um, pretty amazing, and I'm so thankful for that. But thank you. Thank you if you're joining me, and this is new to you. But thank you as well if you've been here before and you've been joining me this past 100 days. Um, it's been it's been a journey. <laughs> Also, it's Friday. Um, if you live here in the UK, what an amazing, amazing day it's been. It's just been sunny, uh, this really cool breeze, um, just fantastic weather. You uh, Just makes you ready for the weekend. And so, so much to be thankful for. So many new things that are happening that just seem to be better, getting a, a turn from the worse. And... Um, yeah yeah just just so positive yeah um yesterday i s spoke to the friends at the barn cafe they invited me over for this interview with my friend nicholas and had a really good time you know answering questions meeting people and we had breakout rooms we talked about um social media and how to use it in a responsible but also again a positive way just to make that impact uh, but it's really friendly. It was, it was like a cafe. You know, that's what all these international cafes are is for building friendships, just to encourage one another to share bits of their lives. And, you know, people use that to improve their English, uh, to meet new friends, especially far away from home. And that was fun. That was, that was nice. So thank you so much to all of you at the barn, uh, to Friends International who organize. Uh, the barn and all these international cafes all around the UK actually and uh, I'd never been since it was on Zoom so this was um, a real treat for me uh, to meet new friends um, who are already friends that's the great thing about going to these things they already know each other and they're always looking to welcome more so I found that very refreshing yeah and thank you so again so thank you for having me there you know you, you already are good friends and you know your friendship just makes it easier to to say hello to integrate uh just to be friendly to one another there's that honesty and that openness um yeah um we talked about really interesting questions sorry this is this is kind of like extended in, in, uh, intro that's why i started early today i just wanted to reflect on you know just this past week this past 100, 100 days uh, we talked a lot about social media and you know one one good question uh, was just um, yeah you know it's it's it can be discouraging you know <laughs> so one of the questions were you know are there is there any advice to navigate all the challenges and maybe some of those uh, pitfalls of using Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and all the different kinds and options of uh, social media, TikTok. Um, I and and I said, you know, if someone uh, were to say, you know, why are you recommending social media? We shouldn't be using it. I, I would totally understand, and actually, I would agree to you to a great extent. Um, there's just so much negative and false information on social media that's just spread so easily that if you felt that you needed to pull away from that um, that you didn't want to be a part of that that just makes sense um, 
But uh, and I didn't actually say this uh, yesterday, but you know how in Lent a lot of people are giving up stuff and a lot of people are giving up Facebook. I kind of feel like the wrong people are giving <laughs> giving up social media. The people who actually would make make an impact, the kind of people whom you want to connect with, people who are encouraging and loving and just so responsible in the way that they um, post comments and talk to one another. Those are the people you want to see on social media. That make the make it healthy and encouraging and actually they're the ones who are pulling away and i think what i said was again it makes sense i think um especially because it's just so tempting it, there's this spiral that you, can, that you can go down into but the way to deal with bad news um you can't just ignore it that's that's the thing it um sometimes um it just grows all the more because um if the only people who are using the medium are you know the people who are spreading negativity again and sad news and bad news uh, really what you want are people who will speak truth in a loving and in a kind way and we need more of that i think the gospel is like that you know the gospel is true and of course you can get your bible and you can read it for yourself but god uses people to speak the gospel and that takes a lot of courage i think that takes you know, you're, you're speaking to strangers even the gospel and you're telling them about Jesus and that means anticipating feedback that isn't always positive at times even and you know if if there was that opportunity it doesn't have to be Facebook but opportunity to speak to a friend you know, something that would really change their lives that is from God's Word that is true that would be just so loving you know I think having the courage to say that would be good you know it's the right thing to do um so again not just social media but you know just with other friends um many of you use uh well technology that you don't think is social but actually is social whatsapp you know you might not think of it as social media that is social media it's just that you have a much more defined uh group of people that you use whatsapp with um yeah, I know there are those groups that you know, it's kind of random, all the comments. But most of the time, you're talking to friends. You're talking to people who just can almost hear your voice when they read, read those what, what you write down. They know you. And so they can fill in the, the blanks. And, you know, that's social as well because it's just that relationship that you're using as a medium to then communicate that picture or that video. It's, it's just a means for you to communicate and to build that relationship. Uh, if you think of it, you know, here in Cambridge, uh, I'm really going on, on a, you know, if you're watching this on recording, just fast forward. I haven't started reading the Bible yet. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just thinking that, you know, here in Cambridge, which is 800 years old, you know, you, you have to get this. It's one of the oldest universities in the world. Um, you would think that after 800 years, you know, the mode of education, the mode of communication would change. But no, it's really just one guy speaking to a room full of people. You know, how outdated can you get? I mean, they were doing that 800 years ago. That's, you know, still what we do today. Um, it might be on Zoom, but it's still someone communicating information, speaking it. You know, why do we still need to speak? Can't we just play a record? But, you know, I think it goes back to how we are made, just how we are wired, that information flows best through relationship. That relationship is how you're able to communicate the best and the most truthful of information. You know, you're able to, and therefore, that's why a real person speaking to other real persons, 
Um, and it's not just talking about proximity, but again, that relationship, you know, that trust, you know, that uh, this is someone whom you maybe even love and admire and respect. You, you actually want to emulate uh, traits of this person. You know, that uh, matters so much in communicating information, truth, advice, wisdom. You know, uh, it's, it's that relationship that is the basis of the Bible. God is a speaking God. And, you know, it's that relationship that becomes the framework in which he speaks to us his word, that speaks to us his truth, that communicates to us about Jesus. Jesus is the word. And it's not just talking about concepts. But it's talking about love between people, between persons, you know, who can, you know, translate that, you know, through words, uh, through even just, again, that eye contact, just through having coffee together. But again, you know, all those circumstances, all that relationship makes information, makes media, makes communication possible. And that's why, you know, I, I don't think it'll go away. I think uh, the idea of, you know, the university, you know, people teaching people, that's still going to stay. Um, I think preaching is not going to go away because of that. It's why people still have to speak the gospel. You have to open your mouth. You have to form the idea and then form those words and communicate it to people in a way that they will understand. There's that consideration, that there, there's that love. It's because, again, relationship is what makes a knowledge that makes wisdom valuable and possible. Yeah. Uh, with that, why don't uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you speak to us in love, in this relationship that you forged uh, with us. Uh, though we are sinners, though we've turned away from you, we don't want to listen to you. You've changed our hearts uh, through Jesus, through his forgiveness, through him taking away the rightful wrath that should be upon our rejection. But you've also given us th this new heart. You've given us your spirit that we will want to hear your voice. So it's by your spirit now that we pray. And it's by your spirit that we will, you know, we will want to hear your word. You want to, you know, almost consume it and take it in and want to treasure and savor, savor every bite and every nugget of truth and every word of love that you speak to us even right now. We thank you for this word in your Bible and help us, Lord, to understand it. Give us minds that will just chew on this truth and uh, think about other people to whom, you know, this truth we need to speak to and how we can relate to them better through learning about how we've related to you. And just help us to treasure this moment of, you know, of, of relationship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today is Friday, February the 26th. This is the Daily Bible Reading Show. We read four different passages every day. Fly here from Cambridge, UK. My name is Calvin, and I'm going to be reading to you from Exodus chapter 9, Luke chapter 12, Job chapter 27, and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, let's start with our first passage, Exodus chapter 9. This is Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels, and on your cattle and sheep and goats. 
But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Isra- Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt. And festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. Just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on men and animals, and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell, and lightning flashed back and forth. Excuse me. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and women, men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, This time I've sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we've had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. 
Moses replied, "When I've gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed, since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, was not were not destroyed because they ripened later." Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. So let me read verse thirty-five again. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Interesting that verse thirty-four mentions that his officials also hardened their hearts. So it's not just Pharaoh here, but this hardening is being contagious. You know, more and more people are resisting God's. Judgment and God's command to release His people, and this is off the back of the judgments. You know, there are more and more intense judgments in this chapter, but it makes them more and more hardened. It's worth thinking about that. You know, that someone、um, can see God more and more clearly, but become more and more blind. Someone can experience, you know, judgment and even pain and suffering more and more. But as a result of that, be hardened against that, both that and God, you know,、um, yeah, it's interesting. It's inter- interesting. I think it, it's just just worth thinking about because you, you wouldn't think that's the way it works. You know, you think、um, that if you see God more clearly, you will be more inclined to believe Him, to trust in Him, to go, or even to fear Him. You would think that, but actually, fear Him less. So the. Let's see. This is plague. Is it number four or five? I've lost count. So,、uh, one was the blood. Two was the frogs. Three the gnats. Four the pl- the flies. So number five. Number five, the plague of livestock and、um, yeah,、uh, essentially every livestock, cattle, sheep, all will be killed except、uh, those belonging to the Israelites.、Um, Yeah,、uh, if you refuse to let them go, Moses says, verse two, and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on the livestock in the field, your horses, donkeys, and camels. So not cattle and sheep, but horses, donkeys, camels. Oh, but also your cattle and sheep and goats. <laughs> so there you go. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal. Belonging to the Israelites will die, and so God sets a time, verse five. Tomorrow, the Lord will do this, and the next day, the Lord did it. Yeah, it happened. All these animals died, so it's it's actually death you know, on living things, but also on their belongings. They've lost all these means of feeding themselves. I guess、uh, animals that、uh, probably pulled the plow and farming animals, all of them died. And I think this kind of death、uh, maybe should have.、Um, you can see it's intensified 
all all the judgments. Previously, it was just irritants, you know, frogs and the smelly frogs and the flies and gnats, you know, everywhere, oh, chasing them away. But now something actually dies, and these animals die, but not the animals belonging to the Israelites. Verse six: Not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. And verse seven: Pharaoh checks this out. He sent men to investigate, and found that not even one. Of the animals of the Israelites had died, so this distinction that God said would happen, Pharaoh checked it out himself. You know, is it true? Wow, you know, he really did distinguish between my people and yours. You know, my my people who are free, who are the slave masters, who are the officials, plus yours, God's people, who are slaves. Interesting that God would identify with slaves. You know, again, I. Uh, mentioned if you live in or you work in an organization which has hierarchy, you know there are the bosses and there are the slaves, <laughs> you know the cleaners, the people who work in the canteen, the people who were probably laid off during during this pandemic while the bosses were still secure in their pensions and with their income. You know God would not be the god of the bosses; he would be the god of the cleaners, of the canteen workers. You know he would be the god of the slaves. Yet, verse seven, his heart was unyielding; he would not let the people go. So that's、uh, number five. One, two, three, four, five. That's plague number five. Plague number six boils. So it's starting to get closer and closer to the actual people. So now there's this judgment that's actually on their own skin. The boils.、Uh, Moses tells the the Lord tells Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot, this black stuff from the furnace, and toss it into the air. In front of Pharaoh, in the presence of Pharaoh, so that he can see that you are doing this, it will become fine dust, and festering boils will break out on the on the men, on the animals throughout the land. So they did this; they tossed it in the air. And verse eleven is interesting. So everyone has boils. Verse ten, boils broke out on men and animals. You know. Discomfort and looks horrible on their faces, on their arms, on their bodies. All these reddish boils, you know. And verse eleven talks about the magicians, the magicians. And previously, when the magicians magicians were mentioned, they would replicate this sign. But no, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. And so here, you know, the people who used to copy to kind of offer that alternative. God, you know, alternative power. You know, we can do this as well. You know, they they couldn't even stand in front of Moses because of the boils.、Uh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again. You know, Pharaoh's heart. He wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So God said this would happen. God caused this to happen. And what's this? This rejection, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart, this inoculation against the gospel. Last plague, so five, six, and seven. This hail, so hailstorm. There's going to be this thunder and hailstorm. So large ice cubes falling down, not cubes, but blocks of ice falling down and killing everyone. But this time, it's a slightly different because、um, God provides them a way out, a way to kind of like protect themselves. And this is a test whether they will listen to God's word or not, because. All to, all this while, God is saying this. God is saying this. God is saying this, and it just happens. And they harden their word, their heart against God's word. But now here, God's word offers them a way to save themselves from the coming judgment. This hail. So God says、um, in verse thirteen, "Let my people go, 
Or, verse 14, I will send the full force of my plagues against you, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. By now I could have stretched out my hand, struck you, and wiped you off the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So you, Pharaoh, or maybe even you, Egypt, the reason why God has raised up this power, this enemy power, this oppressing power, is so that this powerful figure will know that there is a God. This powerful figure will know that there's an even greater power so that all the earth will look at this great superpower and think of you know, the UK. The UK is very admired country you know has lots of wealth has lots of smart people lots of advances very comfortable living in this country you know if god can strike a powerful country like the uk no god can do this anywhere and that's almost god's rationale of letting this particular power this egyptian power rise up pharaoh rise up so that when god strikes him all the other superpowers will look at him so well you know there's someone greater more powerful than Pharaoh. Uh, you still set yourself against my people, verse 17. You will not let them go. Therefore, verse 18, at this time, I will send the worst hailstorm that's ever fallen. And verse 19, he gives this warning, this advance warning to save themselves. Verse 19, give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have into the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal. And if they're there, they will die. So verse 20, the officials who feared the word of the Lord, they hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But verse 21, those who ignored the word left them out in the field. So it's, just, oh, wow. Actually, I guess the slaves didn't know this. So if the officials took the word seriously, you know, and they, in a sense, even cared for the lives of their of their the people under them. They would say, "Okay, all right, you know, come in, come in, come in, and just take shelter." But here are these officials who maybe themselves are taking shelter, but they still harden their hearts, and therefore the people who pay the price are their slaves, are their livestock, and so this callousness against God re results in a callousness towards other people. You know, other people pay the price with their lives because they ignore God's word. And yeah, so the worst hailstorm, verse 24, in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation that struck the land of Egypt, verse 25, throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing, stripped every tree. You can imagine that, right? You know, huge blocks of ice falling down and breaking trees, you know, crashing down on trees, the, these rocks and Imagine it hitting someone who is alive, hitting an animal, a horse or a cattle, and then causing it to die, die from this impact. And the only place that did not hail was Goshen. So everywhere except, you know, this whole land. It must have been so weird to live in Goshen and, you know, sunny skies and then look over there, you know, hailstorm all around you. Yeah, where the Israelites were, verse 26. And this causes a reaction from Pharaoh, verse 27, this time I've sinned. I don't know whether you believe him. Well, Moses didn't, I think. <laughs> he says, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord. For we've had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. So he seems to concede. 
you know, go, 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 go. I'm wrong. You are right. We can't take this anymore. Pray for me. And Moses says, I will pray. I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop. There will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. And here Moses kind of like wises up. You know, God doesn't have to tell him anymore. And you kind of see Moses actually growing in his boldness and his faithfulness as God's prophet. You know, it began a few chapters ago, you know, with Moses saying, you know, I speaking of faltering lips and circumcised lips, you know, him blaming God. God, you made the situation worse. To know oh, Moses being able to tell, you know, Pharaoh, you know, you are this powerful king, but you're trying to trick me. You know, he, he's bowing down before Moses. He, he's, he's saying, you know, we, we are wrong. You're right. But Moses doesn't believe him anymore because I think Moses is starting to believe what God has said. Maybe it's not that Moses can tell character or can tell, oh, you, you're, you, you've done this again and again and again, but rather, maybe it's a bit of that. But I think because God said, this is going to happen. He's going to reject you. He's just going to lie through his teeth. And I'll have to keep increasing the volume of this, this dial of this judgment before he will relent. And Moses can, can see that. And he believes that. He believes God. Verse 33, Then Moses left Pharaoh, went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. Thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. Verse 24, when Pharaoh saw, when he saw, everything stopped. You know, you know what's going to happen. You, you, you know. Verse 24, he saw the rain, the hail, the thunder stopped. He sinned again. He sinned again. And now he and his officials hardened their hearts. It's like, you know, um, disciplining kids who just keep, you know, they, they don't learn the lesson, the lesson. And all they're afraid of is the punishment. And all they see is a way to get out of being punished. And that's why they will say whatever they will do, whatever it is to get out of that punishment. But really, they, they still want to get back to doing what they want to do. They still want to get back to that sin, to that rejection, just to them being the king of their own lives and not acknowledging that God is trying to tell you that. And here's the thing. I think God is not just saying, do this and you'll pay. Do this and you'll suffer but that God is saying, know that I am the Lord. And that's, that's what God is trying to get Pharaoh to do. And he keeps saying this, that you may know, that you may know. He's not saying it to the Israelites, that you may know that I'm, I'm your God. I'm doing this so that you know that I love you, so that you know that I'll save you. No, he's doing this to Pharaoh, who doesn't believe in him. He says, who is the Lord that I should, should acknowledge him? To Pharaoh, who doesn't want to submit to him, that you may know that he is God, that he is the only God, and he is God even over you. And that's the thing that Pharaoh is hardening his heart against. It's not hardening himself against the judgment, hardening himself against even letting the people go, but letting go of that power that he has over this people. Letting go of the fact that, of that notion and that thought that I'm the one who's in charge. I'm Pharaoh, I'm the king. You need to do what I say. No, you need to do what God says. And you haven't done that. And doing what God says means submitting to his word, submitting to his authority. And when you put it that way, what would God need to do to bring us to our knees? Hmm, that's an interesting question, isn't it? You know, um, what would God need to do? Would he need to send judgment after judgment after judgment? And if he does so, would it make any difference? Would we just harden and harden and harden our hearts? all the more. 
I think if you see things from the perspective of Moses, who now turns around and starts trusting God, I think it's Moses seeing how, you know, God pours out judgment in order to save. God shows His power to show that He saves the ones who don't have power, who are weak to save themselves. It's realizing that we aren't in charge. We can't save ourselves. We are sinful. We need to turn back to God. That we then see the goodness of God in His salvation plan to bring us to a point of, well, acknowledging that, you know, we are slaves. You know, that's not that's not a nice thing to admit, but we are slaves either to sin, you know, to Pharaoh. We don't call the shots in our lives. And what we need is for God to free us from this entanglement, from this oppression. From this thing that we can't get out of ourselves, our sin, our sinful nature, our broken hearts, but to give us new hearts, a new nature, a new status before God, and only God can do that for us, and only God has done that for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So yeah, so hmm, yeah. I wonder. I wonder what is um. What else can we take away from this? You know, the past year has gone by so quickly. It has been a year, hasn't it? It's it's strange. The year has just gone by, and everyone's wondering: Is it going to be another year? <laughs> another year of lockdown? Another year of online stuff? You know, just meeting people uh, through screens. Is that how you're going to build relationship? When really we should be thinking back: One year has passed. You know, is this a year in which God is showing us how He is disentangling us from the things that enslave us, or God is pouring out judgment and judgment upon us, showing that we need to repent before Him, and we haven't. I mean, we haven't. We just harden our hearts more and more. It's either one or the other. That's the thing. Either we are helpless, and this passage should show that we 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 can't do anything. We're we're so susceptible. To the elements, to the virus, to, to you know, to we we are enslaved by so many things, and maybe we're even more so now, you know, through technology. And what we need is for God to free us. It's not some strategy for us to reduce using this or to change to. You know, God needs to do something for us. Or maybe you know we are like Pharaoh, we're just exerting our control more and more. Um, it's sad to say, but actually, I think that that both happens. You know, actually. As many as people who suffer during the past、um, year, there there are people who kind of prosper, who who kind of like assert their control all the more. You know, they 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 see it now as their right. You know, to control their time. You know, because we 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 are now. You know, everything we do now is up to us. Our schedule, where we go. You know,、um, you know, there's no oversight. You know, you don't have to go into the office and clock in and out. So so much more is in your control. Your time. And yet we harden ourselves against doing stuff like maybe even reading God's word. You know, you have more time, not less, to do this. You have more space, not not less, to do this. And there's more opportunity to hear and to actually put into practice. Especially if you're locked up with this, with the people in your own home, to practice that love and to show that compassion to one another. And actually, maybe we've hardened our hearts more than we've softened them. And that's, and maybe another year might pass before we realize that this is actually all God's doing. I wonder. I wonder if that's one of the lessons we need to take away from this past year. 
at least according to Exodus chapter 9. Hmm. Okay, so that's our first reading. Uh, hello, everyone. If you're just joining us, this is the Daily Bible Reading Show. Uh, yeah, 100 days. This is the 100th day. I haven't planned anything special. I did think of it, but I just haven't had time. Just got off work. Uh, I am going to have a pizza, so that's going to be special for me. But otherwise, it's just going to be the same old, same old. I'm just going to be reading the Bible, making observations and sharing them with you, um, and encouraging you to do the same, to read your Bibles if you have them with you. Online, Bible Gateway, that's great as well. You know, use tools, you know, the sermons you can find on the internet, you can find on every single passage in the Bible, <coughs> commentaries, books, that kind of thing, all good stuff. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, bears fruit in the long term. Uh, I think 100 Days gives, does give me that perspective that being able to look back and see that we covered through the entire books of Genesis, even Revelation, we covered all of the New Testament by now. Actually, we, I think we've gone once through the New Testament already. Um, and, you know, just having that context, that big picture, um, doing that quantity, not just the quality short time, but actually just quantity of just going through again and again and again God's Word every day. Uh, yesterday, one of the questions I got was, what keeps you going? And I know, I know for a fact that everyone's expecting me to say things like, I'm motivated or I'm so blessed by doing this. Honestly, the question, the answer I gave was, it's just habit. You almost want to do something that you're doing every day such that you maybe don't have to think so much. There isn't that barrier. There's that muscle memory. Kind of like, you know, um, I don't know what it is. Like for me, it's eating bananas. That, that was, you know, it's not that I like eating so many bananas. It's just that I've always been eating bananas and I eat lots of bananas. I eat like five a day. That I wake up in the morning, what I do is I reach for a banana. I eat half that. And you, and you have your breakfast. I mean, you don't even think of it. You probably can't even remember what you had for breakfast because you just have it. You know, you wake up, it's that, you know, wake up, brush your teeth, have your breakfast, get ready for work, that kind of thing. Why not have the Bible as part of that habit? At least that's that's what this is for me. You know, it's just something that I've been doing day in, day out, even before, you know, this live stream thing. That That's what I would do. But this has forced me to cover more. <laughs> I would skip. I, I, I would skip bits. You know, there will be days when I go, ah, oh, you know, I don't feel like it today. And sometimes I feel like that about this live stream as well. But this is what that routine forces me to keep going. And I'm glad. I'm glad that that, that routine is there because then, you know, I, um, yeah. yeah um, uh, it helps me forget everything else that doesn't quite matter. You know, like the lights or the camera or the live stream. I'm just really just um, talking to no one. No one actually, you know, I, I in my mind, I'm imagining friends that I'm talking to. And, I, I, and you know who you are. Uh, whoever has ever written a comment, whoever has ever uh, gotten back to me with feedback, I'm thinking of you, essentially. I'm thinking and picturing your faces in my mind. I'm imagining having this conversation with you when I'm doing this Bible study. I'm thinking of the kinds of questions you would ask me, and I'm thinking of the kinds of answers I would give you, that kind of thing. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, uh, for what it's worth, um, uh, that's, that's, that's what's going on in my head when I read the Bible online. Luke chapter 12, second, second passage. Let's look at it. Just keep on doing this. This is more interesting. Luke chapter 12. 
if I can find it. Was it about? See, you have headings like warnings and encouragement, parable of the rich fool. Do not worry. Ah, oh, do not worry. Ah, yeah, I posted, I posted this uh, Instagram because I was browsing through the passage. And I posted this Instagram picture um, because, and I'll show it to you later. And the Instagram picture has, uh, do not be afraid. You're worth more than many McNuggets because it says you're more, worth more than many sparrows. But just to put that in the context today, you know, instead of buying, you want to buy sparrows as a snack. You buy McNuggets and, you know, G Jesus, for some reason, didn't say you're worth more than, you know, a Lamborghini or a house or something valuable. It says, you know, think of the smallest thing, you know, and it's saying, ah, I'm, as I'm worth more than McNuggets. What's that supposed to mean? You know, this is a cheap thing. You know, but no, this thing that you think is cheap, God thinks is valuable. This thing that you over, that you don't even think about the number of hairs on your head. You know, God counts them. God takes cares of them, and therefore, if God takes so much care in this small thing, how much more valuable are you? And so that's the point of the McNugget meme. Yeah, I'm quite pleased with that actually. Yeah, yeah. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many McNuggets. If you take away one thing from today, is that McNugget meme. <laughs> Let's read this in context in Luke chapter 12. Um, just let me check. Someone sent me a message. Uh, see if it's work. Nope, nope, nope. Everyone's off work already. Yep. Um, yeah, there you go. Okay, everyone's in weekend mode. That's good. That's good. Okay. Chapter 12 of Luke's Gospel. Yeah. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, wow, thousands, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you've whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Well, nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Think of your browser history. Nothing hidden that will not be made known. Think about that gossip. You know, what you've said in the dark, what you whispered will be proclaimed, will be made known everywhere. You know, and so it's um, that warning to not try to hide stay hidden you know the things that you are ashamed of i guess i guess yeah and he's talking about the yeast of the pharisees you know that hypocrisy that means they look a certain part but actually in secret behind closed doors they're another person there's that they're they're, they're play acting yeah, they're they're covering up and so don't do that um, I tell you, friends, verse 4, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, you can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many McNuggets, no sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned 
before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And the operative word there is the word say. You know, don't worry about what you will say. The Holy Spirit will give you what to say. And there is uh, that section about acknowledging what you say. You know, do you belong with Christ or do you disown Him? It's again, you are saying one thing that's positive or one thing that's negative. You, you're acknowledging Him or you're disowning Him. And therefore, that gives the context then to that McNugget meme. To that, it's not talking about God loves you so much; He'll provide for you. Don't worry about that. You know that that thing that you're stressed about. But it's actually about what you say, especially when you're speaking the gospel to others. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, you're brought before these all these powerful men. You know, rulers, kings. You know, that means almost brought up because of charges. You know, you brought up in a law court you're being charged with this criminal act of maybe speaking the gospel of speaking about jesus christ believing in him there in that situation will you acknowledge christ or will you deny him that's how all this fits together you know that's where god's care for you during that time when he might kill you the god's love for you god's protection of you is in the context of you know he 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 cares for you more than he does McNuggets, <laughs> more than sparrows. Because, you know, the idea is that the sparrows, you know, they're like cheap snacks. You know, you buy them. That's why it's not chickens, two roast chickens, you know, it's sparrows. And you buy them snacks and it's a life, you know. And uh, sorry to the vegans, but this is the analogy that's being used. You know, uh, a life had to be given for you to have that McNugget. And, uh, and you think it's so cheap, you know, it's like 20p a McNugget or something like that. But God says, you know, that's still a life and God considers that valuable. How much more your life when you're brought before these powerful men who look at you and honestly, they think your life is worth 20p. They think their lives are worth more than yours. But no, God looks out for you. God protects you. And therefore, you should not say you should not stay hidden. You should not keep your faith secret, but you should speak out. And that goes back again to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They will not speak out. They will not testify for Christ. That means there's a part of them that knows that Jesus really is who he is. They have the theological framework for it. They are able to connect the dots from all their learning and all their Bible study and all the teaching that they have done to others, but they're unwilling to say it. They're unwilling to confess it. But you should. Because you know this, and God has given you His Spirit. Therefore, when you're brought before them, speak out. Otherwise, you know, God will one day come in the Son of Man, in the glory of His angels, and He will speak out against you. So it's all about speaking, speaking, speaking the gospel, acknowledging the gospel, acknowledging Jesus Christ, when God will put you in that situation. That's why He promises, at least to the apostles, that He'll put them in that situation where they need to rely on the Spirit, not be nervous, not try to cook up something, but to say what the Spirit says to them. And that's also then um, this forgiven, you know, this blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, verse 10. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is, I think again, you know, he might be speaking directly to the apostles, but there is an overflow application towards us as well. It's where we deny this gospel in front of others. 
And this is where, you know, we almost blaspheme against the gospel. We, we maybe say what the Pharisees were saying. You know, we know it's good, but we call it evil. We know that Jesus is God, but we call him something less than God. We rationalize the gospel. And therefore, it's that seriousness of speaking the gospel in its entirety, in its faithfulness, in, it, in that boldness, in that truthfulness that it deserves if you're put in that situation. Uh, many commentators, I think every single Bible commentary will say, oh, if you're worried about this, you know, don't worry about it. You know, therefore, it's your conscience is speaking to you. I, I get what you're trying to say, but there's a specific context here. It's about that preaching aspect of the gospel that you're meant to preach. And I think it's meant to trouble you. Uh, it's, you know, again, you know, if, if you're ever given like a talk, public speaking, you know, you know what it means to be nervous, right? <laughs> and why, why are you nervous when you give a talk like this? And, you know, every pastor has been through this. Any, every kid who's had to sp speak in front of his class through a show and tell has been through this. You're worried what, what, what people think about you. <laughs> you're worried about them making fun of you. You worry about saying something that will offend them, that kind of thing. And actually, the same kind of things are going through their minds, through the apostles' minds, uh, when they are given this charge, speak about Jesus, preach him to others. And when you don't do that, essentially what you're doing is you're holding back this, 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 this ministry, this command that God has given you, and you're relying on yourself. Because Jesus says, you know, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will give you these words. But again, pushing back against the spirit uh, notice notice again the holy spirit is mentioned in both cases you know the spirit will will where where is it again um the holy spirit verse 12 will teach you what to say but verse 10 whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit so it's again uh, either the holy spirit will cause you to speak out or in your sin you'll speak back you'll speak down off the holy spirit and, or, and it's, it's an internal thing, you know, you, you're blaspheming, you're turning against God. And it's again, a picture of Pharaoh, again, knowing it's true, but then resisting it and hardening your heart against that. It's that built up resistance towards the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And the people apparently most susceptible to this kind of situation are people who are in ministry of the word, who, you know, make it their job even, you know, their occupation, their they use their time to do this, to speak the gospel. And one day they just go, oops, I don't think I will do this anymore. Or I, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. And they resist it and it's that's why it's such a dangerous thing to even start and to not take this seriously. You know, if God calls you to speak this gospel, you know, Paul says, Woe woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. There is this compulsion that God gives us that we need to take seriously and we need to, you know, be faithful too. Again, think back to the past year and the pandemic. Um, I, I, and I say this, I say this reflectively, you know, I might be wrong. Uh, please tell me if I am. I think we have been in self-preservation mode. We want to keep things as we are. And therefore, preaching the gospel, when we do do it, it's almost like, so that we can maintain the status quo, so that we can be the kind of like the franchises of the, only we can preach the gospel, anyone else can. So this, you have to keep coming back to us. Or we won't do it more than needed. And that's, I think, the telling thing. That means we don't want to turn people away now that, you know, we're already losing so many people. And I think that 
I think we've lost a bit of that edge. Um, lots of lots of churches, even before the pandemic, would put their sermons online and they would put their sermons in MP3, so it wouldn't be video. Now everything is on YouTube, but it wouldn't be video. But you know, I've seen that difference between the quality and the content of gospel messages now compared to a year ago. You know, it's still online, but somehow it 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 seems less. Does, I, I don't know, is, is it just me? But we seem to be preaching the gospel less. And I wonder why is that? I understand that people are tired. But the thing is, we're doing it more, but we're doing it less at, as, at the same time. <laughs> you know, every church is online. So there are more sermons online. But it seems to have less content. It seems to have less focus. It seems to have less Jesus in them. And I really have to wonder why that is so. Is it because we've seen the gospel as less relevant and that all this while the only reason why we have been preaching jesus we have been preaching the gospel is because it's a means for us to grow grow whatever it is that that we are trying to grow this community this organization this group and therefore if it since it isn't growing anymore we're not going to preach anymore i wonder i wonder and 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 you know tell me if i'm wrong tell me if there's actually more gospel Tell me if there's actually more content, more, more, more meat to to the chicken nugget. <laughs> I I think I think it's been watered down, um, and it has. I again, you know, there are several factors. You know, people have are more tired. They can't take in as much. You know, um, actually having video can be distracting. I do get that. You know, uh, uh, and um, therefore you have to take that into consideration and have shorter messages. That was the thing that a year ago everyone was going. You need to have shorter sermons. You can't have that hour-long sermon anymore. People don't have that attention span. And I think that's a loving thing. That's that, but that's on the perspective of the hearer. But here is this uh, application to the speaker. Everything that you speak in secret will be made known. Everything that you think will be made known. And so, what is our motivation? If we are trying to condense it and make it simpler for the sake of the hearers, so that they will still be able to take it in. That's a good thing. I think that's a loving thing. But if you're doing it less because it's just inconvenient, because, and I wonder, we are preparing less. We are not taking sermon preparation as seriously as we used to. And we are devoting less time to it. We are more distracted than we would like to admit because now we have more free time. And maybe we've lost that confidence that actually this is God speaking through his word. We kind of lost that. Then this is actually... God's voice that's being heard, yes, even over YouTube, but it's still the Bible. And we've lost that seriousness and that weightiness. And I, I, I wonder if it's a symptom of the latter rather than the former. Hmm. Continuing on, verse 13. Very heavy episode today. Very reflective. Yeah. Forgive me. I, I, I'm sorry. I mean, I, and, and, um, I'm, I, I really am sorry. I, I don't mean uh, this. I'm not, when I say that, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I think I'm thinking more of myself. I think uh, I, do, I, do, I do realize that actually now I think of my own messages, you know, they've been slightly more bitty and, you know, I, I, I'm trying to reevaluate that. Um, and what I'm trying to do at least is through quantity again, by preaching more and doing more, is to inject more content into it. And to therefore build up that, you know, first of all, I need to build up the skill to do this. This is a new medium and a new way of speaking, new way of preaching the gospel. But also to build up that um, that framework, I guess, 
you know, um, that you know, I tend to preach with like three point sermons with the illustration, you know, that kind of framework kind of thing, and put more meat to it. And so as I practice more and I try this and try that, I am trying to build up towards then having more content, more gospel than less as I go along. And hopefully, hopefully that 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 is reflective um, over time. Time will tell. Yeah, yeah. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He, taught, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. My question is, how is this parable show that this person is rich towards himself? First, in this two brothers, you know, who are fighting over the inheritance, and then this man who's doing financial planning. And how is it that they are rich towards themselves? Um, for the two brothers, I think they're treasuring the inheritance more than their relationship, maybe. Or maybe they just see Jesus as, uh, as just this arbiter, this judge, you know, this petty thing, maybe. Uh, yeah. And what he sees, he says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. So he, he's, I think that's very telling. He says, you're greedy for more. You know, you're trying to get me to, to validate your greed, you know, to, to say, oh, you know, it's only fair you get more of this. And actually, your more is, is, is a hunger that comes from greed. And then he says, a man's life does not consist in abundance, in many things, many possessions. And to drive home, he tells this story. So did that, was that satisfactory? You know, rich towards yourself because I guess if I get the inheritance, I'm more rich. Is that what Jesus is saying? Um, yeah. Mm. It's kind of sad, isn't it? I mean, inheritance means someone has died. And uh, the sad truth is that, you know, when a parent dies and they have children, that, you know, the funeral can be a very ugly event they're fighting over money and they've forgotten the love of their parent they've, they've forgotten the love for one another and how sad it is if their parent were alive to see that kind of that kind of squabble over things it's so petty but then the, there's this rich man you know who thinks to himself you know verse 16 what shall i do i have this problem i have no place to store my crops meaning he has so much well, so much materials, he needs to buy a bigger house, a bigger barn. Imagine some of us actually, that's what we do, right? We accumulate all the stuff we get from like Salvation Army, we buy all the stuff that we get from Amazon, and then we have too much stuff, we say, okay, I need to buy a bigger place. <laughs> that, no, the, in other, the place is not for us, it's for our stuff. And that's what he does. He's, he's trying to get a bigger place for all his stuff. 
and that justifies him, you know, building bigger barns, verse 18, tearing it down and then he can store it. And this storage becomes a guarantee, becomes an assurance that he won't have to work anymore. He could just be able to enjoy life. And that's the very definition of retirement. <laughs> we work and work and work so that the retirement fund grows and grows and grows. So it will stop working and then we can just enjoy and drink and eat and travel, which we cannot do any of these things because of lockdown. And, you know, you fool. Verse 20, you know, all, your life will be demanded. Then who will have get what you've prepared for you? Now, it's, it's worth thinking, you know, instead of God killing this person, what else could God have done? Um, if... If this were a godless movie parable, essentially what you have is the director or the storyteller, you know, causing this man to lose all his money. You know, that's, you know, this person builds up all his wealth. That's like Ocean's Eleven, right? The casino owner, you know, he builds up this wealth and then someone steals it all the way. Ah, oh, you know, and then he, he, and he's alive, but he loses all his money. He goes, oh, oh no, I, I should have, you know. You know, maybe guarded it better or maybe, you know, it shows that actually didn't need this. You know, the moral of the lesson is that you take away the wealth and then you show how foolish you are for treasuring the wealth. But no, this is takes away your life and the wealth, wealth, wealth is still there. And he's saying you can't enjoy this thing. And Jesus, there's thereby saying the wealth, having wealth is good, but you're having the wrong kind of wealth, if that makes sense. You're hoarding up wealth that you can't enjoy. Someone else will enjoy it. You know, someone else will enjoy that barn or that <laughs> that wealth, you know, that drink, you know, that that Xbox, that computer, you know, that thing that you were hoping to enjoy. Someone else takes it and you die and you can't take it with you. Because Jesus says towards the end, being rich towards God, that's the alternative. You should you should be storing up. It's not that you shouldn't be storing, but you should be storing up this kind of wealth that will make you wealthy towards God, you know, that will be able to be spent in you know, heavenly currency or something like that, that kind of thing. And therefore, it's almost foolish to try to make the most of this life in terms of how much money you can get, how much potential you can, you can exercise, you know, how many things you can secure in this life because all of us will die. All of us will grow old before we die. All of us get sick and also lose that capacity before we die. But there is life after death and in which, you know, all of this will be immaterial and there will only be God after death. And, you know, I think Jesus therefore saying, you know, why not instead use all this smarts, all this financial planning to plan for what really does make sense. If there is a God, if there is a life after death, you know, how will you spend that life with that God after you're dead? That was not at all sad. I know that I know I know it wasn't like satisfactory, but again, this these are just impressions. These are not this is I'm not a commentary of any sort. I'm just thinking aloud, at least from what I uh, imagine this is a Bible study. This is really what I would say during Bible study. Um, sometimes it's provocative, just get people to give a, a reaction. But I'm thinking it through, I'm just trying to just think of how this would be fresh and applied to me. Um, you know, for me, you know, most of us think about the next stage in our career and also think about what I'm going to do next. And that is a good thing if you're thinking it in terms of uh, God, I guess. You know, God, is, he's foolish, not because he plans to grow his wealth, but he's growing the wrong kind of wealth. I think, I think at least that's, that's what Jesus is 
um, uh, purpose in telling this parable. Uh, by the way, I'm inspired as well by Malaysian Christian memes slash talk slash whatever show or uh, well, you know, the MCM Malaysian Christian memes. They released this series of Instagram posts that kind of like qualified what they're there to do. They're just three guys who are trying to be faithful. And they built out a community around them, and lots of these communities write in, you know, prayer requests and also questions about the Bible. And I like how one bit of it says that it's just a response. They, they almost want you to think carefully about everything they say. You don't have to agree with everything. They come from very different church traditions, and I think I'd like to give that same qualification. You know,、uh, please disagree with me, especially if I'm wrong. Please help me to see where I'm wrong. Help me to learn as well, and please do think for yourselves when it comes to the Bible. Please use the Bible itself as that final authority. Yeah.、Uh, anyway, I was very inspired by that. Thank you so much, Malaysian Christian memes. I thought that was just so transparent and very loving and very biblical, very,、um, very accountable. I think I think you 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 showed us who you are. You showed us where you're coming from, and you want us to see that transparently. You know, again, that, that hypocrisy from the Pharisees. You know, they want to hide things. They don't want people to know who they are or what they think or what they. You know, they want they want until they want them to. To do everything they tell them to do, but no, no, you guys,、uh, in humility and out of love and out of faithfulness, you want to be transparent so that what people see at the end of the day is God's word, where it comes from, and they trust in this and not them. I think that was a, that's a really, really good thing to do for anyone. I think I think、um, any Christian leader. I think that's that's just、um, just just wise. I think for our own sakes as well. Okay, okay. This is a really extended ed- edition. I know. I'm sorry. Verse twenty-two. We haven't even finished Luke twelve yet. Verse twenty-two. Then Jesus said to his disciples, "Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have." No storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow; they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, I, I should have just read on because Jesus answers that question about what it means to be rich towards God. You know, it's it's knowing that you know God has given us the kingdom. We are this little flock, 
I like that picture of sheep. You know, we're so dependent on God and we think we're just sheep. We're no, nothing. But God has given us his whole kingdom. He's pleased to give us his kingdom. And therefore, you should sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. Wallets that are eternal. Because that will store this treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief can come near. No, no this, there is this treasure that God has given us in the gospel, in Jesus, in the hope of heaven. And so we should just treasure it. I think that's, that's it. And, and not worry. The, the antithesis of that is worry. I guess that's what the guy was doing. He was worried about his security. I, I, I like this quote. I saw this meme today by Jim Carrey, which says, I wish that everyone would be successful and rich <laughs> so that they realize that happiness is not in that. They realize that they won't find satisfaction in that. And here's that exactly that guy who got to that point and realizes that, you know, he's worrying about then how he will be rich until the end of his life. You know, people who are rich worry about staying rich. People who are healthy, people who are, you know, popular worry about being popular. People who are, uh, I shudder to say this, people who are in charge, people who are leaders, you know, worry that, you know, why one day people don't listen to me anymore. Who cares? Who, I, mean, I mean, God has given us his kingdom given us everything and therefore we should be able to hold on to it you know these material things that are just shadows of the real thing all these things you know give it away sell it away you know hold on to the thing that will really last verse 35 be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks they can immediately open the door for him it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. Uh, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I am pretty sure that many people just read through verse 37 and don't get the twist of verse 37. Because everything else is pretty obvious, you know, wait for your master. And uh, you would have probably heard your pastor explain how, you know, the bridegroom comes very late at night. There's this tradition, they need to get ready, they need to get their lamps burning, waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so very late, <laughs> coming back. And so when they come, and it's, oh, okay, master, you've come back, and then you're all the servants, right? Imagine you're like the butler, you're the cook, or you're the... I don't know what it is, you know, the person that, you know, takes his jacket or, or you know, shines his shoes. Okay, master, you're here already. Come, let's, let's serve you some food. Would you like me to give you a message? That kind of thing. So that's what the servants are supposed to do. Look at what happens when the master as he turns up. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. Did you get that? I mean, how many times have you read this and you let this just pass you by? Imagine the servant who's about to serve the, serve the food. The master says, no, 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 you sit down. Let me give you the food. Let me scoop for you. Come, I shine your, shine your shoes for you. Come, uh, I, I comb your hair. Let me take your jacket. It is, it is 
strange. They, I'm sure they didn't expect this twist. They expect they expected a bit whereby oh we're supposed to get ready. We have to stay up all night, wait for Jesus to come. But then when Jesus comes, Jesus comes and serves them. He humbles himself and becomes their servant. Isn't that interesting? This interesting that that that's that's so Jesus like. <laughs> Uh, isn't that I mean that that's so special um, so yeah uh, it'll be good verse 38 even if it comes really late second or third watch of the night but understand this here's a warning if the owner of the house had known what hour the thief was coming he would not have let his house be broken into you also must be ready because God Jesus the son of man will come and hour you not expect him and meaning, you must always be ready. He will not give you an advance to tell you, oh, I'm coming at 11 o'clock on uh, February the 26th later on, and then I'll come and serve you. Why? So that you constantly be serving. You constantly be re- re- ready. You know, um, the thing, uh, my pastor uses this analogy a lot. My pastor in Singapore, I really, really like it. That's why I copy it all the time. But it comes from him. It's not from me. And he talks about how in restaurants, the waiter, a good waiter, will not wait for you to go, hello, Bill, please. You know, sometimes you have to do that a lot. Hello, hello, you wave to them. And then they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they don't come. But no, the waiter is always waiting. Before before you reach for your cup, he comes, sir, can I pour you some water? Sir, can I? And this is the constant waiting, constant readiness that Jesus is saying, because you don't know when this time will come. In fact, that helps. I think Jesus is saying that's almost a helpful thing because if you didn't know when Jesus was supposed to come back at 11 o'clock tonight, what would happen? You'd be watching Netflix all every hour until 10 o'clock and then at 10 o'clock you start reading, oh, I better read my Bible because Jesus is coming soon. I want him to see me doing this when he arrives. <laughs> Isn't that true? Isn't that true? I mean, that's what we do with exams. You know, isn't right? You know, exams is oh, how many months away? And so I can, you know, um, do stuff, you know, not study. Do kind. We wait until the very last moment and then we put on the show. And Jesus says, no, the point of you not knowing is so that you'll be watchful. You will always be watchful and the master will come back and he will find you watchful. It's for our own sakes so that, you know, we will start building now those habits and those watchfulness or those serving habits and those readiness that God wants us to have at all times. Verse 41, Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That that servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving the punishment will be beaten with few, few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Verse 49, I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. 
but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. Jesus has come to bring about this separation, this division, you know, to cause this friction between the closest of relationships within this family, father and son, mother and daughter-in-law. Mm, yeah. And Jesus is saying this division is what this fire looks like. So he begins by saying, I've come to bring fire, this judgment. You think, oh, psh, destroy everything. But no, the fire is seen in this breakdown of relationship. And it's this breakdown relationship that we have with God. All of us have sinned against him. We don't want to acknowledge God. That then causes this spillover into this breakdown of relationships with one another. And Jesus is therefore showing us what it means for us to reject God. When we reject God, we don't have his love. We don't have that patience that comes from him, that spirit of generosity. You know, when we lose it with one another, why should I listen to you? Why should I bear with you? We just start breaking down with the people whom we ought to love because the person we ought to love is God. We've broken that relationship. Therefore, we break it with one another. And the curious thing is Jesus says, I have come to do this. I wish it already been done. He's so eager. But he also says, I also have this baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is finished. So he's come to bring this judgment on the earth, but he's also keen to have this judgment fall on himself. In other words, Jesus is saying he's keen for this judgment that we do deserve that he will bring, that he has every right to inflict, but he's going to take it upon himself on the cross. That's what the baptism is. It's the baptism of him dying this death of judgment, of our death upon himself, so that he takes away that brokenness, that animosity, that rejection upon himself. He takes all this judgment that should be on us upon himself on the cross. And that's what he's keen to do, to have that finished, that word completed is what that we get the word finish, which Jesus says on the cross. It is finished. He wants to finish this work of forgiveness, of salvation, of taking our judgment so that we will be reconciled, so that we will love one another, so that we can love God again. Verse 54, he said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it is going to rain and it does. When it, and when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going for, for, with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way. Or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, the officer turn you into the prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. And so he ends with this journey, this story of these two people in a journey. They're arguing one another because they're going to this court. And Jesus says, if you go to this court, you won't get a chance to plead your case. You know, the judge is going to sentence you. You're going to hang, hand you over to the officer. Officer is throwing you to prison. You won't get out. You're just going to be stuck there. And Jesus is saying, don't wait for that to reconcile with your enemy. Don't wait for that situation. While you still have that journey, while you still have that relationship, mend fences. Try to reconcile. And here I think Jesus is talking about our relationship with God primarily. 
How sometimes we think we we need a day in court to argue a case with God. It says when you know when that day happens, if you're waiting until Jesus comes back to say, "Oh, okay, now I know that you're really God," that will be too late. You know, because then you'll see him only as judge. But now, when there's still that opportunity to reconcile, you know, Jesus says, you know, recognize that, and that's where he talks about you know being able to recognize the weather. When you see a cloud, it's going to rain. When you see, feel the wind, it's going to be warm. You know, many of us, you know. Wow, you know, today is so nice. Weather is going to be spring. You know, it's like so obvious. Jesus is saying it's so obvious that this time that we have now is not to be wasted. You know, some of us know. You know, you just know from hearing this that this is God saying to you, "We need to do business with God. We can't keep holding back and pushing back the time frame for us to say that God. I think, I think I know. I know that you're speaking to me. I know that I need to do business with you. I need to say sorry. I need to acknowledge that Jesus really does." Need to take my punishment. I can't save myself, but He has come to be my savior. And we keep putting off, putting off, putting off until the time when Jesus does come back. You cannot put it off anymore. It will be too late. So do it now. You can tell. You know this, and you know that this is God speaking to you in His Word to do this now. Yep. So that's Luke chapter twelve. Well, only two pa- two passages so far. <laughs> I hope the other two are short. I think they are one Corinthians thirteen. Yeah, that's short. That's okay, but it's also very significant. Uh, okay, carry on, carry on. Job chapter twenty-seven. Job twenty-seven. Tomorrow is an interesting day. Uh, I have a conversation, another interview planned with a friend uh, who is doing this podcast, and I have a, I have no idea uh, what what we're going to talk about. I know the topic is supposed to be student ministry, and um, she suggested that, and that makes sense because you know live in a student town, and I have been involved in student ministry for a while, but not very much these days. So I don't know if I can claim to know very much about that. Um, don't know many students anymore, and the age gap has just grown and grown and grown. So. Um, but maybe I can reflect back on what I've learned through it. I became a Christian as a student, and I think the principles of student ministry—I think they're just so help to, helpful to apply in all the different contexts. That urgency for evangelism. You know, students—you're constantly not just wanting them to understand the Bible, but to just be assured: Are you a Christian? Have you turned to Christ? You know, because of their—you know—many of them are just beginning his journey. You want them to be starting on the right foot. Uh, but also them working together. And you know, student ministry is often done. You know, it's it's fellowship. You know, there's always groups of people. And you know, if we took any of those lessons, you know, on board when we grow older, we're no longer students. We so professionals. We're working as people. You know, we. But actually, always trying to come together, always trying to reaffirm one another, especially in the gospel. Those kind of principles, I think, are just so helpful. Um, maybe, maybe that's what we'll talk about. Um, Jesse, if you're watching this, you know, do we do I have any questions? Do you want me to prepare for something? Um, I haven't really thought about it yet, uh, and I'm I really don't interview well. I I don't. I, gabra. That's why we say in Malaysia we get nervous, and I speed up, and I have lots of ums and ahs, and it don't make sense. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, Job chapter twenty-seven, and Job continued his discourse. As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul as long as I have life within me, 
the breath of God in my nostrils. My lips will not speak wickedness, and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit you are in the right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. So as long as I live, you know, I will speak out against God. <laughs> it's weird, you know, he acknowledges it's God who sustains him. The breath of God in my nostrils. God, you're giving me his breath and I will use this breath you've given me to still call out for justice from you. You know, you've denied me this justice. It's strange. But it's almost faithful because, you know, Job is crying out in pain. Yes, you know, he suffered so much and that's why he's, you know, in this mood, I guess. But also he sees something wrong that I think isn't just wrong for him. But, you know, if God is truly righteous how can god tolerate this wrong and that's why you know i i need i need to bring this to you god because i know you have an answer and i i'm i i think you know for a god who has sustained me and given me this breath this is what i'm going to use it for i'm going to use it to speak out against injustice and so even his conscience you know will not reproach him you know he, he has this clear conscience to address god about this issue of injustice well, that's Job. Verse 7, May my enemies be like the wicked, my adversaries like the unjust. For what hope has the godless when he is cut off, when God takes away his life? Does God listen to his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he find delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you about the power of God. The ways of the Almighty I will not conceal. You have seen this yourself. Why then this meaningless talk? Here is the fate God allots to the wicked, the heritage a ruthless man receives from the Almighty. However many his children, their fate is the sword. His offspring will never have enough to eat. The plague will bury those who survive him, and their widows will not weep for them. Though he heaps up silver like clay, like dust, and clothes like piles of clay, what he lays up the righteous will wear, and the innocent will divide his silver. The house he builds is like a moth's cocoon, like a hut made by a watchman. He lies down wealthy, but will not do so will do so no more. When he opens his eyes, all is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood, a tempest snatches him away in the night. The east wind carries him off and he's gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls itself against him without mercy as he flees headlong from its power. It claps its hands in derision and hisses him out of his place. Mm, so he's describing how the enemy will be destroyed. You know, where he'll lose all his treasure, all his wealth. You know, um, I like verse 19. He lies down with wealthy, but then he opens his he lies down a rich man. He opens his eyes, he's poor. He's lost everything. And so this immediacy of this judgment, of this extraction of all this blessing that God has given him. And it begins all with God, 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 God. It ends all with this evil, evil, evil person who's judged. Which sounds a lot like what his friends would say, but why is Job saying this? 
I guess Job still has this strong sense of justice, and this is his measure of things. You know, he speaks of his enemies. May my enemies be like the wicked, my adversaries like the unjust. So here, Job is speaking of the wicked as wicked, whereas his friends are speaking of him as the wicked. You are suffering, therefore you're wicked. But Job is saying, no, there are wicked people who are his enemies, and that's what they're going to suffer. And so here, Job is. Using the same categories, I think you know they were saying, God will judge, and God is righteous, and those who oppose Him, they cannot stand against Him. You know, God, you know, God will, will, you know, this is God. You know, I'll teach you about the power of God, the ways of the Almighty. I will not conceal. Job is saying, you know, I understand that God is God. I know who He is. He is the one who judges the wicked. Verse thirteen. Here's the fate God allots to the wicked. And you know, I have this sense that, except the thing is, you've gotten the wicked categories wrong. You think it's me, but friends, it's my enemies. It might just be you. And here are then two two groups of people, you know, Job and his friends, who both believe in God, but don't see who God's enemies are. They think they're his friends. So one of them must be very, very wrong. You think again of Jesus and the Pharisee, Jesus and the religious leaders. The religious leaders attack Jesus because. Not because they think they're attacking God, but they think because they're on God's side, because they think that God is attacking Jesus. But Jesus is saying, "You've got the categories wrong. You don't see that actually you are the one whom God will judge at the end of the day. I am the one who will be justified. I am the one who may be even pronouncing that judgment upon you, and therefore I'm not concealing this knowledge of God. You know, I actually believe in the same God. I actually know Him. I trust in His justice." And for those of you who don't realize this, who persist in attacking me, you as my enemies are the wicked. You as my adversaries are the unjust. So how do we apply this? Sometimes we think we are in the right because we are strong. We have strength in numbers. They are attacking Job because he is an easy prey,、uh, and therefore you know he's suffering. And there are three of them. He's, you know, he can't do anything to them, but they can say they're speaking from a position of power and wealth, you know, blessing. Therefore, God must be on their side. So there's this strength in numbers that you just say stuff and you think it's okay. But here's Job, I think, scarily saying, "Look at who you're talking to. Are you really sure that the person that you condemn is unjust, is wrong, is wicked? Because if it turns out that they are right, that they are just, that they actually..." You know, understand who God is, and they trust in God. Then maybe that you are the enemy, you are the one who's wicked, and you are the one who's in danger of facing God's judgment. You know, think of the people whom you criticize online again, people whom you oppose, people you think are just, you know, get things wrong about God. That's why they think about Job. People who speak out against God, and oh, they they shouldn't be speaking that way. You know, and so you speak out against them, and you teach them a lesson because you think that's what God wants you to do. Have you ever considered that maybe what if they are in the right? You are attacking someone who is innocent. They understand something about God as much as you, and maybe more so. And therefore, in doing so, in attacking this just, righteous, this poor person, this Job, you maybe I and that wicked person, and maybe all that attack and all that suffering and all that、um, judgment that I'm condemning this person with. 
God will one day condemn me. That's a very sobering reminder, I think, sometimes when we are so passionate <laughs> in voicing out this judgment against someone who, you know, we can say it because, you know, there are so many of us saying this and that person is just can't do anything about it. And that person obviously deserves it. And it's worth thinking, you know, hey, what if this person has a point? And maybe I'm the one who is in the wrong. I think that's a very humbling thing. There's no harm sometimes actually in just considering that possibility, even as a Christian, because, you know, we can get carried away sometimes with our arguments, with our positions and with our status to think that we are untouchable. And sometimes, you know, we should not just think about who our friends are, who are the people we affirm, but who are the people whom we discourage, whom we think is actually okay to criticize and I think we need to be very cautious, cautious about that. And, you know, maybe God may one day say that that person is right and we are the ones who are in the wrong. How humiliating, how, what a waste of a life would that be if you spent your whole life writing a wrong that actually was right <laughs> and that you were the one who was wrong to try to correct that situation. Hmm. Yeah. One Corinthians chapter thirteen, last chapter for today before my pizza. Oh, I still need to cook my pizza, but that's the thing. I can't. I can't cook it now because I, I never keep track of time, and every time I've done that in the past, I burn it. <laughs> so now I only ever cook my dinner after the daily Bible reading show because if I do it before, it either turns cold or gets burnt. So, uh, yeah. So after this, I have to still cook it. Yeah. So, okay. Oh, yes, short passage. Look at that. Look at that. Just look at it. Chapter 13 it starts here. It starts here. And it ends here. Ha ha ha. Here. All right. Okay. So let's read this. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now... We see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. 
Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Very, very beautiful chapter. Very popular during weddings, you know. The greatest of this is love, you know, showing you the most excellent way. This love which is patient and kind, you know, it's not envious, you know, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's humble, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's other person-centered. It doesn't get angered easily. You know, it's almost like a person whom you can go to with every mess up that you have and a person is not going to get angered well not easily at least and even if so it keeps no records of wrongs it doesn't say do you remember when you did that it doesn't do that you know love it doesn't delight in evil it rejoices in the truth it loves speaking that which is freeing and just true and just right it always protects always trusts always hopes always and it's just that always always you can constantly see that you know that person who never gives up you know it's always always protecting always trusting always perseveres never gives up again you know what what a wonderful passage to you know speak during weddings to remind one another of that bond of love between the husband and the wife that promise of love especially when you're tempted not to be loving and that's the context of 1 corinthians 13 actually it's a convicting truth uh, to people who haven't been loving. So when he says, you know, love never fails, we failed. You know, love is patient, we, we become impatient. You know, love is kind, it's to people like me who are unkind. And it's saying, you know, I have not been this kind of loving person. Why? Why? It's because I've been chasing something else. It's not that I don't want to be loving. But I've been distracted. My focus has been on these gifts. And so that's why it begins with these gifts. You know, if I speak in tongues of men, that's a gift. If I, if I have this, you know, I, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries, it's all these amazing, impressive gifts. I mean, imagine being able to prophesy, being able to speak in tongues. These are things that almost capture the attention of people. You know, not everyone can do this, you know, being able to have this knowledge. And this knowledge can be maybe special knowledge. This prophecy could be talking about a specific knowledge about some things that will happen. Or it could just be teaching the Bible really well. You're a really, really good Bible teacher and, you know, you speak really well and people hear you. Oh, wow, that's incredible. And says it's nothing. Get, get this, you know, think again of the most talented, most impressive, most respected person who is unkind, who doesn't have love, who does this out of self-serving pride. He said, it's useless. He keeps saying that I am nothing, I'm nothing. He says, I'm a resounding gong. Bang, 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 bang. And how irritating is that? I used to talk, I, I used to, I mentioned that I used to have this fire alarm that goes off every day at Wednesday and go, you know, you're that, you know, irritating, just shut up. You know, that's, that's maybe what God is saying to you. Just be quiet even though you think you're such hot stuff because because you don't love the people you're speaking to you don't care about them you couldn't care less you know whether you know whether they know god or not you know you just want them to listen to you you just want that attention you just want that status and you know 
he says, verse three: If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, you know, if I give all my money away, and earlier on we were talking about that treasure in heaven, right? Give all away, and then you have treasure in heaven. If if you do that, even, and you benefit them, and so this is something that is sacrificial, but still you don't do it out of love. That motivation isn't there. You know, you're still nothing. <laughs> you gain nothing. God's not going to reward you even for that. Imagine that. Imagine being the richest person in the world. And a lot of people think that, right? If I have that money, then I'll do that. If I have that gift, then I'll do that. Imagine actually doing that thing, being in that position to actually benefit someone else in such a significant way. But you actually don't care about that person. You don't love that person. Paul says, "Not God is not going to reward you. I gain nothing. Even giving my body to flames. This is... Um, giving is there's a footnote here is let's see what's it be um i don't know by the spirit that doesn't make sense yeah hmm. anyway mates i think of like daniel daniel's friends you know they're walking in the in the fire pot you know that that furnace in the flames you know even if you were to do that do that amazing miracle and that means you 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 stood into that situation of danger you sacrifice yourself others but actually you didn't do it out of love you, you you it's it's just again another exercise you know love that connection that motivation that that other person centeredness you know trumps everything you know, and and oftentimes we we don't see that we see we see it as a nice addition you know the the this church has to teach the bible well oh and then try to be loving towards one another or this this particular group make sure we evangelize make sure we get it right you know make sure when you teach the bible you know make sure everything is carefully done but then you kind of notice the tone you notice that you know just why why are they making those kind of remarks then does this person actually like anyone here you know they seem to be speaking out against other people do they actually want them to be even in a room they seem to be saying that everyone's bad i'm good you should be joining me those guys you know uh, maybe don't you love those people you're criticizing don't and and you know i i think it's possible to to have both i think it's possible to you know speak out against someone out of love and wanting them to repent and come back but I think it's also possible to not do that. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I'm more prone towards the other. I'm, I think um, people often have that choice between being right and being loving. And therefore, um, we'd rather be right and use that as an excuse to be unloving. Or we, we're saying we are right, therefore we must be loving. But no, notice that Paul says the rightness and the gifts and everything, it's secondary to be loving. Pursue this first be honest now i mean i i'm again okay i i i am thinking of my church i am thinking we we don't we don't look before this first <laughs> we th we think if we do this this will automatically happen if we teach that gift if we teach that lesson we do that bible study we preach really well we have that service we have people mobilized then naturally you know the love will come from that or we can say oh you know that is a loving thing to do but no paul is saying it's possible to do all this exactly right and still not be loving and that danger is there and i think it's that convicting truth that he's speaking to the corinthians affirming them that they have this gift but maybe convicting them that they don't have this more excellent gift more excellent way that they haven't yet pursued is it do this this is more important this should spur you to be even more loving even more generous even more other person centered 
And then he talks about Jesus, uh, looking forward to Jesus. What we know now is incomplete, but one day we will see Jesus. That's the completion. Uh, love never fails, verse 8, but where there are prophecies, there will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. All these gifts, one day will be gone. Which, which makes you wonder, think, why, why does God give them to us in the first place? So that we can love one another. <laughs> it's almost as if there's no point God giving you all the resources, that building, you know, this Zoom call, you know, that pastor, if actually you're not using it to love. Because one day all that's going to be gone. And the only thing that's going to remain is Jesus and the love that we have for him. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Oftentimes when we think about maturity, again, we are thinking about maturity and you know, making wise decisions, you know, should I do this job on that, you know, should I... Um, you know, serve, should I do this or that? This is maturity about love. You know, should I be more generous? Uh, who are the people, you know, who are harder to love, whom I should be loving? We don't, we don't think in that, that category in terms of maturity, right? We think of maturity again in being able to know which Bible verses to quote when someone asks us that difficult question. That's maturity. You know, being able to preach, you know, from any, turn, open any page. Okay, let's preach from Isaiah 13. What is that? And you can quote all the cross-references you can quote in Hebrew. That's maturity. Or being able to deal with a crisis. Oh, no, you know, COVID. Oh, no, you know, we have to do it online. How can we make it in such a way that it's encouraging? That's maturity. No, maturity is being able to love like Jesus. That's why he means when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. It's squabbling squabbling over things that make you more unloving than loving that's almost the measure then of how you should use your loves your gifts sorry you know is this going to cause more people to be loved or less is it going to be cause more people to be treasured and to be reminded of god's love or less now we see verse 12 but a poor reflection as a mirror then we shall see face to face this picture of face to face it's talking about jesus now what we see here is not just a plan, it's a person. One day we'll actually be able, you know, like this. What would you do when you see Jesus face to face? Would you say, oh Jesus, let me teach you from 1 Corinthians 13, the Greek word for... You're not going to do that, right? Maybe you're going to say, Jesus, I love you. Thank you so much for saving me. Wow, you look very different from what I imagined. <laughs> or, you know, I don't know. You, you'd be just be talking to you, how you talk to another person. You'd be communicating in a way that just, again, relationship is the basis of communication. You know, you, what you say reflects what you love. And therefore, you'll be saying the things that reflect how much you love Jesus. Mm, yeah. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Yeah. And now these three remain faith, you know, trust in God, hope, you know, looking forward to God's salvation and this love, which we can love with right now. I think that's the idea of that remaining, you know, that these things that will remain now and will go into eternity. And that's why the greatest of, the, of these three, Paul says, is love. It's this eternal aspect of God's character 
that will grow and will remain and will be just, you know, still there. It still needs to grow. I think in eternity, we still will grow in this aspect of how we can be generous, kind, you know, loving, and reflect God's character of love towards one another, all the way into eternity. Yeah. Okay. And so that's our last passage for today, and we're done for passages. Thank you so much. I just want to end by saying thank you so much for anyone, everyone, even maybe someone now who's watching this. Thank you for journeying with me in this.、Uh, I think for me at least, it's been encouraging、uh, being able to share this with you、uh, in whatever measure, you know, this online method or whatever.、Um, yeah, there's just so much of grace in God's continually speaking to us and convicting us of His truth. Um, if I'm honest, you know, I'm convicted even by the last chapter. You know, at times when I've been unloving, I've not responded in ways that,、um, you know, just in ways that I've been really, really ashamed. And you know, that's the thing about again, there's no one here. You know, there's I'm I'm not talking to anyone. I'm I'm in part talking to myself, and just remembering all those times when when I haven't haven't really. Loved and I have just spoken out of turn, and I I do regret that.、Uh, if that's you, I I am so sorry, and and I do apologize. And、um, yeah, and I think, I think、uh, I I thank God that there's always this opportunity still to learn and to grow and to repent and turn back to Him, to say sorry and ask, no, please God, can you please continue to change me, make me more like Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. He is the ultimate loving, lovely person. Can't imagine what it's like to see you face to face. What I would say to you, I know I said stuff earlier, but <laughs> I, I I don't know.、Um, but it's just that last phrase that said, "I'm fully known." I think you will say something to me, something that will convict me. Um, something will remind me of something that maybe I've even forgotten. Just remind me that you see, you know everything. You know me better than I know myself. Look forward to that day.、Um, thank you, thank you for your word that speaks to all of us, you know, so clearly and so profoundly. Please don't stop.、Uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>